0: Hello, I'm Josephine Burton and welcome to the Dash Arts podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. On March the 11th this year, that is 2020, we held a live Dash cafe at Warwick Arts Centre, thinking and talking about art and activism, or rather, artivism. We explored the sweet spot between making a work of extraordinary artistic quality and a work that has the potential to change our world. I brought together theatre director Sophie Austin, director of The World We Made, which premiered at Warwick Arts Centre in 2019 as part of the Change Festival, Amira Spence and Amber Caldwell, artists and co-directors of Birmingham-based arts group Maya, and Dr Michelle Aron, filmmaker, curator and reader in film and television studies at Warwick University, to join us on our quest. So, in today's episode, I'm going to play you this live recording, and I'll be back at the end with some more thoughts. Here we go. I'm going to ask each of you to, um, uh, to, to to sort of introduce yourself by way of telling us all about a particular event or a particular work of art which had a profound impact on you and your practice and your work as an artist and a practitioner. And do you want to start, Michelle?
1: I'm probably going to start in a bit of a cynical way, so I won't talk about one specifically. Um, I'm an academic, and I need to point out, by the way, that I'm here not in my capacity as an academic at the University of Warwick, because I'm currently on strike as part of the UCU strike. So I'm here as um, the festival director and and curator for Screening Rights Film Festival, which is a a Midlands-wide social justice film festival. Uh, So I'll be talking in in relation to that principally. Um, So in terms of art, I've always felt very impacted by art. That's probably why I went into uh, studying, researching and creating audiences around it. But I think the most impactful scenario for me was when um, it was the launch night of a research project that had seen me produce a number of films with participants from a hospice in uh, North Birmingham. And at that launch night, we screened it. And I think I had, for the first time, a real awareness of one that that my job could actually be quite valuable in bringing this kind of work to audiences and that films in particular, because I think films are especially powerful in terms of the possibility of harnessing and creating change, that films can truly kind of have this profound effect on an audience. And I don't just mean emotional um, or necessarily inspirational, but actually change views. Um, And that was sort of quite a, a significant moment for me and has influenced a lot of what I've done since then.
0: Thank you very much, Rochelle, and we'll hear a little, bit, a little bit later a bit more about your, about your work. And, and, and Amber, the same question. Um,
2: yeah, so my background is kind of dance and performing arts, that sort of thing, growing up. Um, and when I was, before I started studying um, in a sort of academic capacity, I saw a piece of work by a French dance company called Frank de Louise, um, and they did a piece which basically was about breaking free from this kind of robotic and um, sort of linear lifestyle that they were all in. And I just really enjoyed the whole sort of narrative of of the challenges of becoming free. Um, And that really sort of spurred me on to want to create my own pieces of work and create my own stories within sort of dancing. And yeah, I was really young then, so it was like a new new experience and something to see. Um, And that, yeah, that spurred me on to want to go and study in the arts, sort of, and, and continue on. Obviously, fighting with my parents.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you,
3: Amber. And Amara? Um, So, um, I'm co-director of a company with Amber um, called Maya. And over the last few years, we've been um, exploring (coughs) this relationship between art and urbanism. And one of the um, more profound, I'd call it movements rather than a specific artwork, um, is, uh, I don't know if anyone is familiar with Project Row Houses, which is um, it 's an initiative in um, Houston, Texas, and it was set up by um, six African American artists who were kind of exploring are there really pragmatic things that we can do with our creativity and i 'm interested in that like the poetry of creativity and um, like poetic pragmatism what does that look like they set up this housing initiative that was um was basically a direct response to some of the social challenges in the third ward of houston um, and i'll probably talk about it later but it's incredible so give it a google
0: thank you very much i'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more uh, about Maya group a little bit later
4: and sophie um so I'm probably going to come from a slightly negative place I guess uh, in the inspiration for me. So I grew up in a small village in Norfolk uh where like the only sort of entertainment was amateur dramatics and everyone got involved and it was incredibly playful and everyone and that was the only thing I sort of did because I did terribly at school and it was eight, I was 17 had just left school didn't really know what I was going to do so I um got a comment at the National Youth Theatre. I was no good as an actor, so I was invited to work in the office and they had a couple of spare tickets and it was the summer holidays. The National Theatre had given them some spare tickets to see a show, so I went to see it and it was Alan Bennett's house and garden um, and it was just full of blue rinses, no offence to blue rinses at all but there was no one young at all in the audience this was the summer holidays, this was the, their show stopping summer show and it didn't speak to me in any way whatsoever it didn't inspire me, it felt rigid, it felt old, it felt boring and I felt disappointed that the National Theatre wasn't doing anything for people like me and just didn't represent anything that I believe. well it represented something in the country that I didn't sort of feel inspired by and it spurred me on to become a director that wanted to speak to a wider range of people, a more diverse audience, and encourage a playful and imaginative sense of what the world could be rather than representing what the world is currently um, and so I went on to become a director, um, probably not off the back of that, obviously, but it was uh, it was quite a big catalyst for me
0: Thank you thank you very much sophie i am I, I, um, this evening came about because. Uh, we at DASH were privileged to be part of the Change Festival that happened here in, in autumn last year, which was the first um, first version of the, the festival that explored kind of climate change, but also social action and the wider, wider, wider opportunities to change our world. And as part of the evening, um, Sophie Austin premiered a new work, The World We Made, so, if you want to explain a little bit about the evening and about the sorry about the world we made
4: uh, yeah, sure so it 's wonderful to be back in uh, at Warwick Art Center to do uh, to talk about this show because it 's a massively important part of my life I think um, so inspired by what I was just saying about when I was uh, eighteen and thinking about what what theater I wanted to make i I've gone on to make political theatre, or theatre that, that really sort of speaks to us now and tries to help us imagine a different a different future. And um, Becky Birchall, who produced uh, the Change Festival, came to me and said, what work is out there at the moment, what theatre shows or plays are sort of talking about climate change, but not in an apocalyptic, we're all going to die sort of way, but in one that can inspire hope or change or new thought and new ideas. And... I drew a blank. I couldn't think of any writers that were working in that sort of way uh, at, that, at that time. And uh, she presented me with Jonathan Porritt's book, The World We Made, and I don't know if any one of you has read it, but it's an incredible uh, sort of a thesis on, on, on all the things that have happened, but also the things that could happen uh, to make the world a, a better place and to certainly work with climate change better and, and, and ensure that we are still alive and around in 2050. Um, and she said, I want to turn this into a play. Uh, it's pretty weighty. It's pretty hefty. It's quite a challenge to read at some points. Um, but I was like, yeah, let's try it. Let's give it a go. And we brought the writer Beth Flintoff on board um, to turn it into a play. And she did an amazing work, uh, project on it. And she, just, she created it in a way that enabled us to see all these different characters who have done so much over the last... Uh, 50 years but also went on to do so much in the next 50 years Um, and so we made it we made it come to life and a big part of the work that I do is immersive it's site-specific it's out on the streets it's it's where people go so one of the things when I wanted to stage this play was to think about the staging of it and to make sure that it wasn't a passive piece of theatre where you sat down shut up went into the background and Disengaged. It was about getting you involved and getting you as immersed in this potential
0: hope and change. Um, Sophie, can you tell us a little bit about how, um, how the kind of reception, how, it, how how it was received by audiences like ourselves? <laughs> Um, it's been a
4: really interesting uh, play to put on, and, and um, as I said before, I am interested in putting plays on in, in non-theatre venues, I suppose, to reach a sort of wider audience. Or if I do put them on in a theatre venue, in it's, it's, it's in a more interactive way, I guess. So we've done them in church halls, in uh, village halls, in business uh, boardrooms, uh, schools, and and we've done it here as well. So we've we've met with a lot of different sorts of audiences, but it's genuinely been a really moving evening. The, hour, the play is about an hour and 20 minutes and then we always have a conversation afterwards because that's as important as the actual play itself because it's about getting people to talk about what they're worried about, what they're frightened of, what they know, what they don't know um, and enabling people to feel uh, like they, when they leave the, audience, uh, the show that they can do something. Um, and one of the things that we've done is we've been teaming up with Extinction Rebellion and often going to some of their meetings and What's become really clear is that the exhaustion that people are feeling from fighting, from needing to stand up and be active and be participant and act, and have this activism, uh, is that it's hard and it's a hard thing to sustain. So knowing that the arts community and that there are plays out there trying to spread their message of hope and change, uh, they felt really rewarded by.
0: And do you, you, you said at the beginning that the kind of the, the impetus for the play it was really Becky's since the suggestion that it would be fantastic to have something that was about hope and optimism rather than just totally being hit over the head by a, by a sledgehammer and do you think that's do you think that's one of the magic ingredients that, that, that mm-hmm. has the power, the, the, the op, kind of embedding hope and optimism in a work that could potentially ch- kind of create change?
4: For me, 100%. Uh, that and comedy, I think. Yeah, um, I, yeah I, I think there's something really easy about bringing a sense of disaster and doom to everything. It's lazy. I think that's an obvious thing. We're all going to die. Yes, we are. It's, but what's next? You know, what what else is there? And I think it's so invigorating to see something that comes with answers or, or possible solutions or suggestions or just try something, you know, it's that, and that's quite rare, I think.
0: I'm going to uh, turn to Michelle, really, at that, on that note, to to bring to bring you into the conversation, Michelle, both as, a, as an academic researcher and as a curator of, of the, the Screening Rights Festival. Um, I wonder, obviously, you introduced your work by talking about hospice care, which must be Somewhat bleak and I imagine not enormously optimistic. Um, do, you, do you identify or do you, do you try to find that in, in your work? How, does, that, does what Sophie says, ident- you know, does it touch you? Does it strike a chord for you?
1: Well, it was so resonant because I think that's kind of that's the hardest thing, especially I'll, I'll speak about the film festival first because its mission is to bring uh, films that wouldn't necessarily come to our neck of the woods, uh, films that I think are really significant in how they're telling stories, true stories, Um, I mean their documentary and their feature films from around the world some may be critically acclaimed some may have just missed out on that but they've got really important stories to tell and doing it in really fascinating ways that I think uh, need to be seen but they're often bleak you know they are and each year I have this this thing this kind of hard sell you know how do you encourage people to come and see bleak films. And as I was saying earlier to the group before we came on, uh, last year actually was our worst year in some ways because things were pretty bleak here. I don't think they've got any better. (laughs) Um, It's an interesting year. But anyway, things were pretty bleak in terms of conversations around Brexit, the coming elections, and lots of kind of uncertainty. And I think that's why... I mean, there were other reasons too, but I think that's why audiences dipped because it's very hard to muster audience to see stuff. But on the other hand... I often feel like I'm preaching to the converted. The kinds of people who are going to come and see these sort of important films are the kinds of people who are going to come and see these important films. And actually what I want most to achieve is to get, you know, people who wouldn't normally see them or people who might see them but haven't seen that kind of thing to be drawn in and because of the film itself but especially because of the kind of discussion and exchange that happens afterwards to be properly kind of changed by it. And and change, of course, takes so many forms, you know, Being inspired to to, to alter something slightly is a really huge thing. Stopping buying something or stopping going somewhere, or so, you know, these are really, really big things as well. So we have all kinds of different ways of thinking about, you know, real impact. Um, in terms of the hospice films, that's sort of a whole different category, again, that I've become very, because I've done a lot of work and written about death and dying on screen, so I very much wanted to be involved in creating films that were telling stories that were much more honest and uh, true to individuals' experience, because what we see on screen, on television, in, in Hollywood, etc., are very kind of mythical representations of what it means to be dying um, of an illness, or dying in war, or whatever it is, so I have this real sense of the importance of individuals telling their own stories and and having the skills to tell it. You know I don't make films, I sort of I hope to enable people to make films. Um, and those films can, of course, be so powerful because of their personal journey, and that's not to be under undervalued either. There's a therapeutic benefit to telling your own story. It doesn't matter about how the audience is impacted it's a huge thing we often think about empowering or giving people skills or whatever as, as some kind of journey people with terminal illness aren't going on any journey They're, the skills that they gain through the project pretty irrelevant the value they gain and the kind of therapeutic value and all the kinds of connections and the enriching of their life that goes on you know that's kind of invaluable so oh I've said a lot <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean there's so much to talk about coming back to your first
0: point about um, well there were many points when you were talking about the screening rights festival which happens at the MAC in Birmingham it
1: sure. happens at the MAC and will happen here in the future but for the time being is happening in different venues in Coventry uh,
0: and you were just talking a little bit about the, um, the, the, the the environment, the place because that's a big part of it presumably this how do you get beyond preaching to the converted or talking to yourselves because that presumably is a big part of the that's you know in terms of the affecting change that's a significant that's a significant part of the, the process. What do you know do you do that with the films? Do you take them out? Do you how, do we you don't ever...
1: take them out at the moment, but we do work incredibly hard to draw audiences in, specifically the audiences that will be most spoken to and most kind of will have the most valuable experience in in, in watching the film and having the discussion, but also those communities that at least likely to probably come to the Mac or to the Warwick Art Centre, so and that involves a lot of work. So that whole idea about um, creating change or trying to affect change through art involves so much more than the art, <laughs> you know. It involves, and often that's overlooked. You know, the kind of labour that goes on around making things happen. Mm-hmm. And there are hurdles as well. There are hurdle, There are reasons why certain communities don't come. I mean, you talked about the blue rinse. Crowd going on in the National Theatre. They've done so much work, as so many institutions have, to try and shift the demographics and their audiences. And we know that that kind of emphasis on diversity is part of, you know, every organisation's manifesto. And so often it's about ticking boxes, but it actually involves proper investment and proper understanding, and proper critical discussion, and involvement of people who know and understand firsthand, and having those conversations, and putting all that kind of uh, resources into that happening properly.
0: And do you? I mean, so so. If, if one of the ingredients that we're putting into the mix is uh, is the kind of the, the hope and optimism. Well, what else would you put in the mix? Of a, you know, what what you know, the a work that can has, has the potential to make a change.
1: In the well, I wouldn't say about the say the film itself. I'll say that I think it's really important to have discussions after films. It's sort of like as any parent would say, you know, when your kid wants to watch something that's you know a bit worrying a bit you don't know but you know is quite important but you want to have that conversation well we'll all we're all kind of uh, naive in relation to certain things and we all benefit from having a kind of really valuable discussion afterwards because after all i i believe change only happen we only change how we feel not just about and what we'll do about say climate change but about say you know conflicts immigration refugee crime you know all all of those things will only change them if we're truly able to connect with others i mean we've got so much discussion about our responsibility at the moment which is fantastic i mean it's a shame it takes what's going on at the moment to cause us to think properly about social responsibility but you know we should always be thinking about our obligation our responsibility and how we connect to others and art has a capacity sorry i'm interrupting you michelle sorry the
0: art has the capacity to do that but i think Mm -hmm. it also has the capacity to patronize Mm. and to be slightly didactic which i imagine i mean i want to kind of come on to you guys because i'm sure that these these are things that you think about in your context of work in fact i might bring them in and then come back to ask you that do you want to do you are you able to um who's going first amara amber Oh, okay. So, well, I, I guess tell us a little bit about, about Maya Group and how you that that particular that particular idea of talking to your community and trying to affect change in your community without kind of being to being superior, looking superior, or looking like you're trying to kind of forcibly make a change.
2: I think we co-founded Maya Creatives many many years ago because of our own sort of experiences being artists or being in the industry and sort of seeing how um the differences in especially the cities um was quite apparent back then so in terms of forming an organization it was always it wasn't about imposing it was always about to support and to sustain and to keep going like the arts to us is something that was so important for so many different reasons that you know we we wanted to encourage that and to keep it going and to make sure that people have a support system especially where we're from to know that, you know, we're here, we're championing you, we want, we're, we're pushing you. So that's how, sort of how it started and that, that was, what, seven years ago now? Yeah. And it's kind of changed and oh boy. grown <laughs> and, yeah. It's, and, it, it's and it's
3: changed because, um, so when was talking about the origins of it, at the time we were kind of, we were young, excited and a bit naive and kind of thought there are there are skills and lessons and experiences that we've acquired in our journeys that could we find ways to, like, share or redistribute or think about what value looks like in a particular context. And so we started to work in a way where we kind of had to stop and check ourselves and be like, are we part of the problem in this way that we're working? For example, we started out with... um, Business clubs for artists is one of the things that we did, and that was talking about economics, finance, PR, all of the really like capitalist kind of economic driven things about sustaining a creative practice. And that led to all of the challenges around thinking about capitalism, but then also, what is it to talk about business skills in the arts if we don't have the sustained workflow of jobs in a city like Birmingham? What are we assigning those business principles to? Um, and then we had to s- sort of think about all the additional layers where the artists, most of the artists that we're working with, are black or of um, colour. They're from um, particular um, geographies. They're from um, uh, particular uh, classes, always, a funky thing to explore but from non-privileged economic backgrounds and which adds different layers we can't talk about sustainability in the arts if we can't talk about race geography class if we can't have really frank conversations and i think just to touch on what you said about um the, the diversity initiatives and all those things is how do we actually talk about those if we're not really prepared to call a thing what it is if we can't call out racism within our institutions how do we actually address you know, um, um, diversity in in what is needed. So then Maya kind of became this organisation that was like, how do we do active experiments or how do we reimagine what infrastructure looks like to then see what the active experiments are? Um, And so we've kind of been doing, um, we've been building... Uh, a proposal for an artist-led hotel for the, last, um, for the last two years. I'll talk about that at some point, I'm sure. Um, but also conversations around housing and, and what, is it, what does it mean to build community-led initiatives in a time where gentrification, displacement is affecting our communities. How do we use our artistic sensibilities, our artistic capacities to build really pragmatic things? I think that's where it starts to talk about um, I think for us, it's about we're investing in things from a particular experience, but it's about collective liberation, ultimately.
0: Um, can, you, Amber, can you give us an example of some of these projects? I mean, maybe it is the hotel, or maybe it's another project, like a kind of tangible, tell, bring bring Maya to life, Maya Group to life for us.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: um, so in I'd say in the journey up into to the hotel um Utopian world, two years, but we'll see. <laughs> um, we've actually taken on a house. Um, as part. It's, it's a new development in a neighbourhood in Birmingham, which we feel is sort of quite close to our heart in terms of what Maura's just speaking about. Um, this house is going to be part of a charitable trust from the developer's point of view, but for us it will be an art house, <laughs> a community space, an event space, um, also with the residential aspects of it, which will kind of be, in a way, a stepping stone to what the hotel is likely to be. Um so obviously there'll be I'm sure there'll be challenges along the way, but we now feel that we have um a space where we can explore all the things that Mara was just speaking about. Um we can use it as, as a tool to bring in the community, to put art out there to to audiences that might not ever have seen anything like that before. So yeah, I'd say that's a, we haven't started yet. This is a project that's um, very new. We've signed a lease this week. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> very new. And, and so, in, and are people, will people like will artists stay in it? Will like, and will the community? I mean, it, will it be a kind of mix for both? Yeah, I would
2: say so. I'd say definitely a mix. of we would like to host sort of artists residencies in there, as well as have the, the public space open for community sort of led things, who are not necessarily limited to artists alone. So
0: and 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 how? Um it's led by the two of you, and you have a small team. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 the, and the audiences, like you, the work that you're doing in Birmingham. Because I know you work outside and beyond Birmingham. But are the community are they have they grown with you? Are they friends? That, are they people that you've grown up with? I mean, tell us a bit about the audiences that you work with. <laughs> <We
3: are>. Yeah, <laughs> us too. <laughs> um, yes, in short, like um, it's one of those things of we we don't always necessarily frame the things that we do as art as either, which is part of the. If I can go on a slight tangent, um, uh, we speak a lot about grandparents. We speak a lot about our grandparents and, um, and the ways of organising that as uh, migrant communities, a lot of our grandparents and the team came from Jamaica around, or the Caribbean, around the Windrush generation. And we think about all of the collective ways that they organise. So, for example, when they couldn't set up um, um, traditional banking arrangements, they had to find their own ways of creating a saving system that was built on trust. So we look at that as a really powerful tool and say, cool, what does that look like for our generation and beyond? What is the thing that we could design or experiment with to think about what that looks like? And then we kind of have this thing of maybe it's not that we don't know about economics, but maybe we don't know the language or we, don't, we haven't acquired the language. The journey with the hotel, we, we kind of developed a project that was about... Um, uh, connecting young people with um, technology and using it to create hip hop responsive architecture with kids who have never thought about architecture as a field that they would pursue, and we change the language we talk about hip hop being something that is uh responsive to its its environment that hip hop is a is a critique of its environment, so then we say, "How could we use hip hop to reimagine what your city looks like and suddenly you 've got all of these kids who are saying oh, I have got things to say about the place that I live. Oh, I can build a thing. Oh, it's it's possible for me. I have the, I have the capacity to think about and, and to reimagine my environment. So sometimes I think it's about changing the language that we use or changing the relationship that we have to that thing. Maybe it's a case of maybe it is buildings. Maybe it's we can't exist in the same sort of buildings will need to find other avenues to do stuff but then also maybe it's like maybe people just want to make films maybe it's that thing of when you're talking about the value of storytelling and how empowering that is in its own right maybe it's people don't want to come into a building to watch a thing but they would love to make a thing and I'm I'm interested in that how do we um, support people to 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 go on their own liberation journey whatever that looks like that might start by going into a building and seeing a thing but it might Start with a change of language as well.
0: That's beautiful, Amara. Do, do you? I'm just interested listening to the way that you talk about your work and your practice. Um, would you to, to to really kind of extrapolate for that in its simplest terms? Would you say that you guys are change change agents, and art is your medium? Did you say that to us? (laughs) I'm just listening to the way you talk and that's that's my read of it is that in some ways it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, you guys are artists, you're doing, you want to... So that's the stuff that you know and that's how you're going to try and make an impact.
2: I think it's come from a place of change because of the the issues that we were addressing all those years ago. We, we, We thought that there should be a change. Like, the systems in place weren't for us. There was no sort of support. So it came from a place of change and it just so happens that we were both in the creative industries at the time i suppose so
3: yeah um amber said she was a dancer what's yes. your what's your practice theater performance live art um, and i think that even that journey of wanting to reimagine what it means to even be an artist because sometimes we get into like flusters, being like can we not just do a thing can we not just demonstrate a thing and let people call it whatever whatever they want to call it like i so, sometimes I'm, I'm always in this like constant battle of when people say what type of artist are you and i'm like it, the medium doesn't matter yeah. you know the the the, the storytelling or the journey or the process is so much more important than the art form sometimes Um, and that's kind of I think the journey that we're on is to say how could we just create a thing that other people might need to assign languages to but in us not assigning language to who else then feels like they could explore their own creative capacities because the the, the language hasn't been predetermined or the value hasn't been predetermined
2: That's a conversation we always seem to get into is what is an (laughs) artist as well when we're going through these things like you could be an accountant and you made a chair, you're an artist so it doesn't sort of limit it to Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, if we've got we've got um, optimism and hope, and we've got context, kind of conversation. What's the, what other ingredient? What would you what ingredients would you
3: put into the mix? Investment. <laughs> 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 this is <just> vital. <laughs> I think I think as well. Like um, we've been on such a journey about about. I think trust is such a big thing, like such a, a powerful tool of. When when trust is inbuilt into a set of processes, the creative outputs or the anything else become. It almost becomes part of the work. But on the other side of that is when we're thinking about who isn't invested in or who isn't given access to or all of those things. I think a lot about. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if anyone um, saw the oh God, sorry, Creative Case for Diversity Conference a few years ago, Arts Council's um, Creative Case for Diversity Conference, and Javid Alapur, uh, Manchester, um, sorry, he's not Manchester-based. Salford? Yes. No, it's Manchester. He's a theatre director. Theatre director um, up north. And um, and he talked about this idea of racialised risk, and I thought that was such a poignant term to think about how investment is not isn't made in racial contexts, and just the idea of, like, who has to jump through what hoops in order to get? I think trust is a really big thing in lots of different um, variations as another ingredient into
0: the trust investment. I, before I open up to the, the, the to, to you all,
3: because I'd love to hear your
0: thoughts on it and also any questions and, and also works that you think have been powerful. I just thought I'd use it as an opportunity to talk about Dash because I set up Dash with a theatre director um, to to challenge the way we saw the world, to create, to, to bring artists together, to create new work with international artists. And we've, over the years, we've sort of um, made work with artists in the, the former Soviet Union, trying to understand what it was like to live under the Soviet Union, to live today in its shadows, and before that in the Arabic world, making work with Arabic artists. Um, and we're currently exploring what it means to be European in a kind of post-Brexit landscape. And we, um, or what it doesn't mean to be European, depends on, you know, Whatever that is, and if it's if it's still something that we can we can call our own, and and I, I I think my process and my approach to it all has been a desire to learn and a desire to listen, and a desire to be as open and. Curious um, um, and not impose myself on the conversation all the time. I feel like that's really. I suppose I, met, I mentioned it in the context of asking Michelle and in you all really about the patronizing element. I think the minute you start going in with the mission, with something that you want to make people do or understand, it's not. It doesn't. It, it doesn't make for a natural conversation or a natural opportunity to change, to make change. So my ingredient would be an openness and a curiosity, and um, and kind of uh, the, the the suppression of of the self and on that note the suppression of the self I'm going to ask you all do you have thoughts and reflections on on, um, on kind of what makes what kind of, what the possibility of change anyone Christina has a roving mic any questions also um, there, is a lady, there was a lady here
2: um, I'm currently doing my FMP on activism and protest and I wondered if you had any advice I'm an artist fine artist um it's predominantly based on feminism but it does obviously come into climate change um it comes into multiculturalism it covers quite a lot of topics so i was just wondering if you had can any like can
0: i just clarify f you're gonna to have to help me with the oh find maybe. a major project for, okay. my,
4: for my
2: hnd so it's my second year of my Great. degree so
4: thank
0: you uh, sophie do you, wanna, do you want to have
4: how, do, how do you have response? to present it are you exhibition exhibition yeah. amazing that's exciting.
2: yeah so it's uh it's kind of a a big opportunity um i'd like to take the opportunity to get people that are already in the industry to have a viewpoint
4: as well well i guess that's the, that that would be my question whenever i start a project i think about who is the audience who do i want to be in the audience who do i want to collaborate with as audience but then also as artists or as storytellers what's the story i'm trying to tell and so i guess i would offer you the opportunity to think about what is the story you want to tell and to those people who are they uh, to really imagine them, whether they're you know Oprah or whatever, <laughs> you know, just think about who is the ideal audience, and then and then make that piece for for them, and the right people will come. You know, that's in my experience that would be good.
1: Michelle, do you have any thoughts to add? If beyond my beyond my experience, I'm afraid I wouldn't be able to say anything useful. Um, see, I
3: I because they're it really big subject matters. You know, like huge. Um, at, in my performance practice uh, two years ago, I did a show that was about um, human trafficking. And the, the the process was how close to home can we make that thing for one person in the audience? It doesn't matter who it is. Because I think it it can be really easy to get lost in the huge. I think the the, the most finite way of storytelling that you can get with something really, really particular, because in the particulars becomes the universal. Lots of people can start to find where they fit with that really really small story um so i think if you can find and i think that's what's something that that piece has um has done in the snippet that we saw is honed in on honed in on stories if you can hone in on a really particular aspect of a story people find that i think that's broader absolutely resonance.
4: right and that's that was the when we were making the world we made one of the big things was within jonathan's book there's so many numbers and figures and so much data to crunch and to get through and actually when you boiled it down and you said who is that one person that has been infected by that and how can we invest in their journey you can tell a whole lot of story and a whole lot of world politics by one person going through a journey you know i think that's really good
0: I wanted to come back, and Michelle, to ask you because we, talk, we we haven't had a chance really to talk about it. But you briefly talked about the hospice films, mm-hmm. and you also started to. We were just talking before, and you told me that you've started to take the, those short films out of Birmingham and into out, kind of internationally. And coming back to the story and like how the story can touch people, how is it for the audiences in Uganda to, to hear those films
1: from somewhere? You know, from somewhere from a completely different world. Um, well, despite thinking that I knew everything about the films because I'd seen them so many times and it had been such an intense experience being involved in that project. And then I'd taken them around the UK and Europe to talk about them on so many occasions. Um, and they, even though their are stories, because, of course, all the participants, well, most of them are now dead. And so, But there's something very live about them and the continuing relationship with them when you watch films over and over. So, yes, I felt like I knew everything about them. And I knew how kind of effective they were Um, sort of in their universal terms but I couldn't have realized how universally affecting they would be in Uganda so I was I used them in a whole different I shared with all kinds of audiences Um, on one occasion I used them to teach medical students um, at a medical school in this was in in Rwanda actually in the north of Rwanda and this was like a very well funded by American money they'd set up this kind of university of global health equity and what they this this American money was being pumped in to create this kind of um, of state-of-the-art facility that was going to train uh, local I would I can imagine very privileged individuals from certain privileged groups within Rwanda to have the kinds of medical training that's only available in the West. And that in that way they would be so skilled that it would take the health, the prof- health profession in Rwanda to a whole new level. And Rwanda is this kind of model within East Africa of extraordinary kind of um, developed facilities, etc., there's lots more to say about that. Anyway, in teaching these students, they were so receptive and so moved by the films. And I became so aware, as I did on each occasion that I shared the films in Euro- Uganda and Rwanda, of how universal they were, but how there so desperately needed to be films there. And so now I'm very much involved in trying to draw on money that isn't being used by all the usual suspects in trying to do that kind of work. Um, that I might be able to access here to hopefully try and be involved in setting up projects there so that there's all different kinds of films that are going to be made, Um, both community ones, like a community project, much like the one that I did at a hospice here, will be done at a hospice in Uganda with a local filmmaker. Um, A narrative um, film that will hopefully show on TV that will be about the story of someone with cancer, which has never been shown, there's never been a film... About or any kind of feature length um, narrative or story about um, having a terminal illness. So all kinds Sorry, of ways not, that that could that's happen. A,
0: that's never across the world or never never made in. No, not that it's not Sub-Saharan across Africa. the world.
1: There aren't there they haven't been narratives. There's such a particular uh, stigma around illness and, and cancer and of course HIV. But there's such a different landscape of healthcare out there um, and the popular narratives and such a kind of um, isolation that goes on with people who are um, ill, and especially in impoverished communities, which is the majority of Uganda who are living in poverty. So there's just this incredible power that can happen, but the films need to be made there. The universal quality was in evidence and you know they were films from birmingham and birmingham is in a wonderfully diverse city so it wasn't about the you know this is these are sort of rich white western people at all it was about a complete slice of birmingham life uh, with two of the participants of african heritage as well which i know helped make the film seem accessible and that's why i was invited to bring them um so yes it's extraordinary what what film can do but it really shows up both the universal. Qualities, but also the desperate need for those kinds of films to sort of happen in all kinds of communities. And it's possible, because right. technology makes that possible. Yeah. That, is that helpful? <laughs>
0: Local, universal, and... Um, or knowing your audience. <laughs> um, I, any more questions? Any more questions about, I think, specifically, how, w- what works for audiences as well? I mean, I think it's very... It's a kind of... Uh, the audience aspect is a quite
5: an important part of it. You're saying that it's getting more difficult, or that you had a really bad year last year, or something. And I just thought, just stick with it, because I just feel like um, we—I lost my mother to cancer uh, last August fourth, and and have lost other people. And when you go through a death with someone, you just go, "Huh, that's not the way I thought it was going to be," you know. And I think we think that because we're told so many stories that are wrong about death. And I was talking to the funeral home director, and you know we were just talking about how out of touch we are with death and how it would radically change the world if we became more in touch with, with the reality of death. So I guess it's just to say I'd really love to see the films and just keep doing what you're doing. So that's all.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Any 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 other questions? There's one more.
6: I had a question for Michelle about uh, coming here for the festival. How do you expect that it will change the uh, programming or, or the way the, the festival will be organised? If you will include, I don't know, maybe more of s- debates or more of something, because you may... I don't know expect to have more students or I don't know um
1: I've been doing it in Coventry as well in the last we're now in our sixth year which is miraculous and I say we and I actually mean me (laughs) 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 people probably yeah yeah um so we've been, I've been doing it for two years in Coventry and Birmingham, and and it doesn't, the challenge is always about how much you kind of are embracing, like, the, you, I struggle every year with money, you know, I'm constantly writing funding applications um, to try and pull it off yet again and to get through it, and every year I say I won't do it again, and anyway, um, but. Part of it, Warwick's been very good at saying, you know, speak to the business, you know, and I have, I've met with Warwick Ventures, you know, this could be a possible way of financing it, thinking about a business model and it's like, this isn't a business, this is about, so it's always a balance between how to be profitable enough to be able to be self-sustaining, how to kind of constantly write funding applications you know i, I want i 'm now looking hopefully to try and find some kind of foundation grant that would at least be more than one year so that it can keep going, not least because I do it on top of my day job which i 'm currently on strike with yeah. um, so that it can so that I can step away from it and do actually the stuff that i 'm probably better at, which is I, I think you know the writing and the thinking that 's why I, I became an academic. Um, so, yes, it's, it's a challenge, but yeah, go on.
6: But would you, for, I mean, it's just um, an, I- an idea, it's a very basic idea, but do you think that if students were involved in helping you with the festival, it would help um, the festival being better known by, by students and, and maybe encourage them to come, even if otherwise they may have been a bit shy about the topics or the kind of films that you're showing
1: um students tend I mean in the past I tie certain films to certain student cohorts and and subjects and that is obviously a great way of building a really big audience and I work very closely with the person who's doing that I have student volunteers already I'm I teach a course on film and social change here um, and I'm now, for the first year next year, I want to tie the first assessment to the festival so that they will be writing stuff for the festival. So yeah. I put in a big application to the alumni fund here with a whole suite of ways in which I wanted to involve local schools as well in making short films. I'd done this before in Birmingham years ago. Ran film. I, I teach sort of smartphone filmmaking for social justice, and I've done that around the world as well. But doing it locally and they produce films, the best one would be shown in the festival. The others, I'm hoping maybe to do this for City of Culture. The the other ones would be screened, you know, in a room next door. There's so many ways. I mean, for me, it's a no-brainer. I mean, the festival just seems, like, capable of generating so much. But it can't when it's me, who's a full-time academic, doing it alone. So I'm always keen to, to meet another crazy, enthusiastic person who will... Uh, take over
0: (laughs) oh it's a great advert thank you michelle i i want to ask i mean the thing the elephant in the room is which michelle vaguely referred to is this the coronavirus you know you guys have all braved out this evening thank you very much but i'm i'm very conscious of the need you know the arts definitely i mean there is an extraordinary world of art which relies which is not live and which is not doesn't require being Having a communal experience, but to me, as a as an artist, and also a, as a participant and an audience member, the power often of changes from this kind of collective experience of brainstorming over whether or not you know how to cha- how to help someone change, or or or, or, in, or being part of a live experience and everyone going through that together. And I'm very aware that um, I mean, hopefully, it will be a short term. It will be short term, but we are being encouraged to distance each other from our, distance ourselves from each other and. Theatres across Europe are closing. And venues, kind of collective, collaborative, big spaces are being closed down. And that's a real risk for us as artists. I mean, it, before, it, I, I was um, brainstorming with my colleague, my brilliant colleague, Christina, who's very much the we in our organisation. Uh, you know, can we move digitally? What could we do at Dash that would enable us to continue to reach audiences who are who are having these quite lonely experiences over the next few months? But I'm just interested in in... Really, for, to, to ask you guys as artists, how do we deal? How do we deal with this current crisis? How can we as artists support people and audiences during this next few months? It's quite a question. Have you thought about it?
4: Well, my, my next show is on tentative potential cancellations or postponements. So, um, I've, I'm doing a, an immersive show in uh, Shoreditch in London in May, at end of April. And uh, I got the message from the producer today saying that we're going to go ahead regardless. Um, I mean, I guess for me, it's about kindness, actually, to artists and being kept in the loop by producers is really helpful because otherwise you know if you just get told it's cancelled there's no pay because it's a force majeure you're you're everyone is screwed so there's for me there's massively about i'm absolutely about let's just bring everyone together and uh, people are sensible you know you're all sensible if you're not feeling well you wouldn't come like it's i don't know i i feel like there's there's got to be a trust and it's what you were saying earlier there's got to be a trust between us and the audience to say let's do this i, I i'm you know, speakeasies happened when there was no alcohol allowed. You know, theatre can happen when mass groupings aren't allowed. You know, I think there's 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 some excitement in that, um, but yeah, we have to be sensible, um, of course. And uh, one hopes that it will will be a short-lived thing. I not yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I, but I, f- I, I believe in my heart that we go on regardless. I think
3: there's something about as well the 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 precariousness with which a lot of artists and and um cultural workers are already working in um I'm saying this as someone who like two speaking gigs were cancelled this this month um which is that has a massive financial knock on effect when you're living end to end um i'm I'm very interested in what is the policy that supports self-employed workers who make up the bulk of the creative and cultural industries. The budget's
4: just come out and said that there'll be more access to benefits. But well, you know, you know. <laughs> And you know. also,
3: that, I mean, because it, it's one thing, yes, they make the provision for that, but also then the loopholes and the jumps and the, all that that you have to go through in order to get that, by which point... You probably burn out all these other things because it's your everyday. What is it to go through that process when my rent needed to be paid yesterday? And I think it comes back to what everyone's kind of mentioned this idea of care. I think that's what, and when you talk about kindness, it's like, can that come from everywhere? <laughs> you know, is th- this that this not just be an obligation that we as organisations or practitioners have to each other, but that the state should have to all of us as well, um, who exist in a vulnerable capacity, in any way?
1: Yes, hear,
0: hear, and 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 and, uh, and a responsibility. Do we have a responsibility to it- the? alongside that, to try and kind of, to, to combat this... Um... Sorry, Michelle, you were going to say something totally different and okay. I've asked you. Please feel free to respond to, to respond to my first question rather than answering second, responding to the second one. But I was wondering about, you know, sort of, it's, it's quite hard, I think, for us all to look beyond our personal situation. And then, you know, then we have this sort of sense of, do we have a responsibility to... to do we still yet have to have a responsibility to help to combat... The, the bigger issues, the wider issues. That I suppose this isolation is really a big. To me, it's
1: quite a looming concern. But I'm not. You don't need to answer that question. Well, right? going to ask, yes, would be my answer. And then I, I actually, unusually, rather than talk about ethics or responsibility, I did want to sort of pick up on that that challenge because, you know, care and intimacy are are the currency of change, of, of human connection and change. Now, how, how can we Put do? That on a put it on a t-shirt <laughs> um but how can how can one create intimacy without during periods of social isolation and distancing now obviously I, I i i work on film and film is not a can be live live cinema not forgetting about that but mostly it is all about and i believe strongly in the extraordinary power of the intimacy created on screen between that kind of Dynamic between the the screen and the spectator, but it is a challenge on any in any art field. And I'm sure with technology, with you know the brilliance of the human capacity for innovation and in art, this this is the new challenge. This is I think possible. it's
4: it. And I mean, it, you're already sparking in my mind how I could absolutely create a a, a a performance that means that you're always a meter away from everybody else, and that that you have to go on an individual journey. But you get you you know you could that would employ thousands of artists, but you know, you get a, an individual experience and, and by the end of it, you've seen something incredible. I'm sure we could do that. Yeah. So there'll be obviously lots of money sloshing around from someone because <laughs> loads of shows have been cancelled. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep thinking yeah. about that. <laughs> but there's got to there's be a will and a way, I guess. That's the thing. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I suppose what's so brilliant about everyone coming out tonight and hopefully to the, my show in April, that, there's, that there will be this sense that people will want to continue to be entertained and talk to and communicate. And, and we just have to find a way of doing that, don't we?
0: Sure so we'll do. And I hope uh and thank you for sharing those those ideas and I'm looking forward to, to seeing that next show. Not the not the, the show in April but the next show <laughs> about uh, on phones at distances with everyone like trying the Wuhan shake from yeah. afar. <laughs> um, I, so um, I, we're going to. I'm going to ask uh, the wonderful Irina to play us out this evening. She's going to play for us shortly. But I'm going to do a couple of thank yous before before um, before she plays. Um, I want to do an enormous thank you to um, to Sophie um, and to you all for bringing the life, bringing to life the world we made. Um, thank you so much to you all. Thank you to Sophie, to Amara and to Amber from Maya Group. Um, please check out their project and possibly you know, come and see their house. Uh, look, it's Abuela.
3: Uh, Abuelo is the hotel, um, Yard is the house. Abuela
0: and Yard. Um, and to Michelle um, with her Screening Rights Festival, possibly here later in the year.
1: It'll be in Coventry, certainly, probably at, well, I don't know, uh, square one or Fargo don't know about the Mac in Birmingham but the, the the films the hospice films are available clips of them are available online but if you wanted to watch them in full you could always email me they're available the clips are available on life moving the project's called life moving lifemoving.org oh, thank you all so much for for joining us this evening
0: <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed our discussion. A huge thanks again to all my guests that evening for their contributions, to Warwick Arts Centre for commissioning and hosting the live event, and a special thanks to you all for listening. I hope you may feel a little bit inspired by my brilliant guests in the conversation. We recorded this episode just days before we all moved indoors. It felt quite poignant to me to listen back to such an animated live conversation, and especially hearing Michelle's reflection that care and intimacy are the currency of change. I believe that the challenge for us all is to find ways to sustain that care and intimacy during these times of distance. The team behind the Dashouts podcast is me, Josephine Burton, Christina Catalina, and Natalie Beach. Our intro music is from Dancing Fakir by Maruf Majidi. Our theme song is called On the Edge of Your Spring, written by Sasha Lukovic with music arranged by Andy Hall. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcast or by going to our media section on our website, dasharts.org.uk. If you like the Dash Arts podcast, follow the show, share and please leave us a review. It helps us stay visible and would mean the world to us. I'm Josephine Burton, back in a fortnight with more conversations at the Dash Arts podcast. Thank you for listening.